But uh, so we're going to be looking at um, Advent. So what is Advent? We got the candles. We got the thing uh, on the screen, Advent, a season of preparation. So we're doing about four messages on, on Advent. And last week, Sean talked about um, the, the first Advent service was on the genealogy of Jesus and Matthew. And how often do we just blow right through those genealogies and get to the good parts of the gospel? But it was so good to just kind of re relax and reflect. Go, Jesus is a king. And his, his lineage is a kingship lineage from the King David. And it's just so wonderful to see that. And today we're going to be looking at um, the season of preparation, continuing that. Because that's what the word Advent means. It means arrival. Advent means arrival. And so we want to prepare our hearts and be ready for the revival arrival of Jesus. So in this, we're going to look at John the Baptist, how he prepared the people for Advent, the arrival of Jesus, by preaching a message of confession and repentance. So we can follow John the Baptist's path to Advent for via confession and repentance in our own lives. So I... Before, before we get into that, I just want to share, you probably got your own family traditions for Christmas, I'll bet. And they serve a couple of functions, at least in our family. It's foundation for memories. You know, sometimes we think back to our, our Christmas memories that we made, but in our family, they were a very tight protocol. And if you deviated from the protocol, at least someone would say, hey, we're, you know, we're, we, we kind of messed up here. We got off the path. So let me share with some of our, our, our tight protocol. Um, the Christmas Eve day is what we call the, the day before we go out for breakfast. There are two restaurants that we go to, either one, Panacookin House is one of them. I can't remember what the other one was, but we had to go to one of these two restaurants. And then we went downtown to Dayton's. Did you go downtown to Dayton's? The Christmas display there. They had this big auditorium with little animated figures and lights and all kinds of crazy stuff. And it seemed like half of Minneapolis had the same idea because the lineup would be way out the door. And then, uh, then we had Christmas... Eve service at my church, which was just wonderful, kind of a candlelight service. And then we go over to the cousin's house, the Nelsons. Either they came to our house or we went to their house, had turkey and ham dinner, and then came the bingo, uh, the white elephant bingo thing. And, and it got ruthless, let me tell you, because after everybody had a gift, then you still you keep playing your bingo. And then if you saw something you liked, one of the favorite ones was the Lifesaver book. Remember those things? That was a hot item. So that so someone would want that. You wouldn't bingo, you'd steal it and, and give them your turkey gift, whatever it was. So we went back and forth. And then and then we go home, and Christmas Day would come the next day. And the first thing we do, even when we were little kids, we toddle on out and we bring money and we put it in the manger set that we have. We give our gifts to Jesus. And then as a family, we would decide where to, to, to donate that money. And then came the stockings. You couldn't do any presents or the stuff laying, the big ones, you know, laying that. Un unwrapped by the tree till the stockings were opened and then came the presents and then the brunch and my dad would take all the wrappings and make the biggest 30 second fire you've ever seen <laughs> this big blazing fire all the wrappings right up the chimney and then there was the afternoon hockey pond hockey game and that was kind of Christmas for the sellers and like I said it's very tight order and it gave a foundation for our memories but also it was a pathway of preparation to count down to Christmas. As you got one step closer, we got each step would let us closer to Christmas. One of the things that I would do when we go downtown, downtown Minneapolis, we had this big whale of a car, nine passenger station wagon. 
and I go in the back and have my little pocket New Testament. And he, he, as lo, lo, long ago as I can remember, I would get out the, see, in that big car, you can get alone, even with four kids. You get my little spot, space in the, in the back of the station wagon. I'd read the Christmas story to myself. And I, I, I would just, I remember as far back as I can remember, I wanted to draw closer to God at Christmas time, to really experience Emmanuel. And I love that song. I'm not going to get teary like the other verse service. But I mean, it's, it's Emmanuel. All those things to talk about in that song, it's Emmanuel, God with us. And that is such a miracle. And at Christmas time, I really want to experience that and just soak that concept up of Jesus humbling himself in such a way, living his life like us in our fallen, broken world, and then all the way to the cross where he died for our sins so we could be forgiven and be assured of eternal life. I mean, what a, what a great time to celebrate and just understand that. And I don't think I'm alone in this, wanting to draw closer to God at Christmas. I bet that people are shaking their heads. I, yeah, we, we all do. They did a survey years ago. It's not just us in the, in the church. They did a survey with unchurched people, and they said, what would it take for you to come back to church or just to visit this, this place called church? And they said, if I could experience God, like experience God, I'd go there. And I think that's what draws us here. We want to experience God, to know him, to feel his presence, maybe hear from him and however he communicates to us, to just really experience God. And that's the goal that we have at Christmas time. And at Advent, it's, like I said, it's preparation. It's about Jesus' arrival. We want to prepare ourselves for his arrival. You know, at Christmas, we can get distracted with all the lights and the Santa stuff, and it's fun. I mean, I, you got to admit that's fun. And with all the worldly stuff, we, we sometimes get distracted. And you hear people say, well, they're taking Christ out of Christmas. But you know what? We stole the holiday from them. Because the shepherds would have been out in their field guarding their flocks by night in April or October, not solstice. The solstice festival was like this debauchery pagan festival. And as Christianity grew in the, in, in the, in the, in the kingdom, we, we hijacked it. And yet, and yet for years, it's the, it's the time that we just pause, reflect on Emmanuel, draw closer to God. It's a wonderful time. And even though we, we stole their holiday, we don't want, I don't want to give it back to them. So it's important to us. So let's go to our text in the first chapter of Mark, if you've got a Bible. And it might be up on the screen. I, I showed up five minutes before a service this morning and said, here's my notes. So if it's not perfect, it's my fault. <laughs> but let's go to Mark. One, we're going to read the first eight verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not worthy to, to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandal. Well, let's talk about John the Baptist a little bit to get a picture here. He's the miracle baby given to Elizabeth and Zacharias in their old age. And he may not have had, he may have had taken a Nazarite vow, 
But um, if you didn't, he, at least he lived that way. A Nazarite vow is where you don't cut your hair, which would be weird for a guy like me going bald. Um, uh, but you choose to have a Nazarite vow, and a man can do it or a woman can do it, and you don't come near a dead body, and, and you don't come near wine or even grapes. Um, it could be a, a lifelong thing. Like for Samson, it was lifelong. But uh, for a lot of people, it was just a period of time. And the purpose was to be consecrated um, to God in a special way. But we see for, for John the Baptist, this vow was given to him. It wasn't something he chose, but it was given to him by the angel Gabriel. In Luke 1.15, it says of John, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. So because of this, he was highly esteemed from the people. And the purpose of being filled with the Holy Spirit and his lifestyle was so he could have a clear mind and a clear direction to lead the people to prepare them um, to meet Jesus. So you might be wondering, as I was, as I've read this passage, did John really eat grasshoppers? I don't know if you've thought about that or not, but in Leviticus 11.22, it's actually in the Old Testament law where it says, these you may eat, the locust after its kind, the destroying locust after its kind, the cricket after its kind, and the grasshopper after its kind. So I think John the Baptist might have eaten grasshoppers. Now, the other part of that, the wild honey, I like. When I was in high school, a couple of my friends and I, we went down to the Minnesota State Fairgrounds where they were having a ski sale, and there's some orchards there selling some stuff, and they had... Uh, honey in the comb. You ever eaten honey out of the comb? It, it, you, you bite into the wax, and it just it, you chew it, and the honey just slides down your throat. It tastes so good. So we were we were. I can't believe we did this now at this time, but we were sharing it. You know, this guy take a bite. This guy take a bite. Oh, this is so good. So I can handle that, but I'm not so sure about the 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 insect part. There is a. <clears throat> some people think that maybe the locust tree has a bean similar to the carob bean, which is a substitute for chocolate. So if it was a, a chocolate and wild honey, I could handle that. But I'm not sure about the, the, the grasshopper part. But the, the camel's hair coat, um, it's not just a hide from a camel that you wore. They take the hair of a camel, they weave it into thread, and then they weave that into a, a garment. But it's rough. I mean, think about your most itchiest wool sweater times about five. That's what this guy wore. I mean, I couldn't even imagine doing that. But in that day, it was thought that a, a true prophet of God lived a rough, austere lifestyle. The false prophets, they're the ones that lived in a nice house, said what the people wanted to hear, wore linen, wore cotton. But John wasn't like that. He, he lived a rough lifestyle. So in the people's mind, he was a real and true prophet. And, and what does it say in verse 5? All the country of Judea and all of Jer Jerusalem was going out to see him. So he was the phenom of the day. He must have been scary looking too, a little wild. Um, but someone definitely you'd want to hear what he had to say, wouldn't you? I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love to go out there and hear him. So what was John the Baptist's message? Let's take a look at that. There are three words I want us to look at. The first one is in the very first verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the word I want to look at is the gospel. We think of the gospel as, you know, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, first four books of the New Testament. But the gospel is the good news of salvation. In fact, the Greek word oi and litigon is actually, 
it translates directly good news. And it's an interesting word. It's an old word that was that the Jewish people would have been familiar with as well as, as even Gentile people. Um, the book, the Gospel of Mark, was written primarily, we think, to Gentiles. And Mark used Peter as his main information source. But, okay, so the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. New Testament's written in, in Greek. And so... If you weren't at the first service, you can answer my trivia question. <laughs> There's a, a translation of the Bible that's in Greek, both New, Old Testament and New Testament. You know what it's called? Give you a hint. They abbreviated LXX. It's called the Septuagint. It's very old. And in the Septuagint, the word oi and, and, and litigon, the word for good news, is often used in the Old Testament. So it's a word that was used a lot. And its translation is, hey, this is really good news. Um, if we go back to Isaiah chapter 40, which is the direct quotation that Mark makes from Isaiah chapter 40 in, in a couple places, but in verse, 40, in verse 9, it says this, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news, O Anlitagon, and lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say it to the cities of Judah, here is your God. So in this verse alone, just two times we have that, that word. And, and what was the good news for Israel? Um, the, the, their Savior is coming. Look at him. And the prophet is announcing from the top of a mountain the arrival of God. And they had done... So let me give you some, some, back, some background here. Um, Isaiah was written during the time of the Babylonian captivity. 500 years before... Jesus came. It was the lowest time in Israel's history. They hadn't been following the law. They were worshiping idols. Even going so far as to, to follow after a god named Molech, sacrificing children. It was dark, deep time in history. So God said, enough is enough. He, he gave Israel to be a beacon to the world of what it looks like to have a relationship with God. And they were messing it up. And so he brought them into judgment. And there's some waves of judgment. The Assyrians came down. The Assyrians were just, they crushed people. They were militaristic, and they just crushed people. The Babylonians came later. This is what happened at this time. They were different in their conquest. They would take people, instead of crushing them, they would just deport them and move them away. And in this case, the Babylonian Empire was like 1,500 kilometers away. And then they would just assimilate you into their culture. And so it wasn't as, as harsh initially but in the assimilation of your culture, your culture would die and it'd be around no more. And Israel was the only country that they did that to that didn't die because God protected them. And in two generations, God revealed to Jeremiah that the time is going to be 70 years of punishment and then it would be done and then they could go home. And that's what they did. So they paid their, their price, the judgment, and then they got to go home. And so this passage in Isaiah 40 is the announcement of, hey, your time is done. Time to go home. But it wasn't, um, well, let me just share. Um, during this time, God spoke the loudest and the clearest. It was the time, it's important for us to know about the Babylonian captivity because a majority of the Old Testament is written about that time. All the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and most of the minor prophets too are all about this time. You know, God is speaking to them. They're, they're, it's a low time, and they're, they're struggling, and it's, just, it's an awful time to be deported and taken away from your home and everything that's familiar. But God spoke the loudest 
and God spoke the clearest. He does that in our lives, doesn't he? C.S. Lewis long ago said, God whispers in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. There are probably times in your life when you've looked back and at the time you're like, oh, this is awful. This is the worst thing ever. But then in the future you look back and you go, but I heard from God. And that was actually amazing to have done that. So Ezra, uh, during this time, is uh, again about the captivity, recording exactly which families came back. And if you take the, the names of the families to Ezra lists, probably about 100,000 people came back. But a million people stayed there because it was too hard, too hard of a journey. 1,500 kilometers over the desert, the dangers there. And, and for 70 years, they were kind of used to living in, in, in Babylon. And history records that the second biggest Jewish population was in that region next, next to Israel. But let's go back to, to that chapter again. Uh, in verse 2 of Isaiah, he says, Her iniquity, iniquity has been removed. She has received the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. But the people had then repented of their sins, and God now restored them. And that's John the Baptist's message to us, repentance. So that's the second word I want to look at, repentance. It's the word, Greek word metanoia, two words, meta and noia, which means to change your mind. It's not like changing your mind kind of on a whim or beforehand. It's not like, like uh, I was going to give my spouse a scarf for Christmas, but now I decided to give her a new mountain bike. <laughs> it's more after the fact, where you change your mind on a mental and emotional level, you realize, oh, I was wrong there. I've really changed my heart and my mind about what would happen. Metanoia, that's, that's repentance. You know, and, and it's a serious enough thing that was going on here with John the Baptist that it involved um, baptism. And in that day, that really would have offended the Jewish leaders because um, they already had a sign of the covenant, with God, which is circumcision. And, and the only people that got baptized were, were Gentile proselytes. So people that are Gentiles, and which were really despised by the Jewish people, and they allowed them to come into their faith, but they you know, did that with the sign of baptism to prove, yeah, I'm changing my, my heart and mind, I'm coming into it. And so, and so here's John taking Jewish people that have humbled themselves, saying, I'm changing my mind, I'm repenting about my sin, my lifestyle, and I'm proving it outwardly by getting baptized, even though these religious people really despise me for doing that, but I'm so st struck in my heart, in my mind, of what I've done, who I want to be, that I'm, I'm willing to take that, that chance of being rejected by the Jewish leaders and become baptized to show that repentance. So it would have been radical for the day for them to do that. The next word we want to look at is, is also is in verse 5. Um, they are being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So we're going to look at confession. That's a Greek word. Again, homo legeo, two words. Homo means like like, and legeo is like word. So it's just to agree. To confess is, is, is to agree. And now that when we're in the faith, we've accepted Jesus for the payment of our sins. So when we confess our sins at this point, we agree to three things. Number one, we agree that we've sinned. Number two, we agree that it's forgiven. And number three, we agree that we're going to call it quits. So every time we homo, legato, confess our sins, we're doing those three things, agreeing those three things. 
And we need to do that because, because we still sin. And we need to deal with it. And, and you know, uh, we, we need never walk more than a moment out of fellowship with God if we just keep that active confession going throughout the day. I think back to, I love to see kayak. And when I got my kayak, I bought it in a town called Bayfield, Wisconsin. It's on, the, on Lake Superior. And there's this archipelago of islands called the Apostle Islands. They thought there were 12 of them, so the name of the Apostle, like 24. They couldn't count very good back then. But anyway, so I got this kayak, and Lake Superior can be a scary place. One time I was making, and some of these islands are, are like two miles, two and a half mile crossings, and you're out there. And One time I was by myself in 10-foot waves. I'm like, I hope I live. I wasn't sure I was, I really wasn't sure I was going to live. But normally... The, the, the wind and the waves knock you around. And so if you're going like these big ocean water or lake water crossings, you, can you look ahead, you, you take the bow of your boat and you line it up to, to a mark on the island where you're going. And then I've got a rudder and it's got foot pedals. And so when, when the wind kind of moves me this way, I adjust my foot pedal and boom, I'm back. And the whole time you're paddling is one adjustment after the other. Because the winds are always whipping you around. The waves are kind of knocking you there. But that's a picture of our lives, isn't it? I mean, we want, we want Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. But our sin nature, boom, knocks us off. So what do you do? You confess. You humble a You bring yourself back. And then, you're, then, you're, and then you're back, you get knocked off again. And you come back. That's kind of walking the Christian life. But it's important. Have you ever heard the concept of keeping short accounts with God? That's what that's about. You need never walk more than a moment out of fellowship with God. If you wait till the end of the day, the Jesuits had a practice called the examine. Every meal, they take five minutes beforehand. But even, even with, with that, I mean, they spent the whole morning out of fellowship with God. Just confess it right then and there. Say, Lord, I agree. I'm sin. Thank you for forgiving it. I'm going to not do it again. And, and keep walking with your fellowship uh, with God. Well, let's get back to John the Baptist. In ancient times, a king would send his envoy ahead of him to prepare the way. Sometimes these envoys would do things like even build a, a road or a bridge to make sure that everything's ready for the king. And so when John the Baptist did this, he was very familiar, I think, with, with the culture. And the envoy for the king, probably more important than building even a road or a bridge, was to prepare the hearts of the people. So when the king showed up, they're like, who's this guy? They know. Yeah, that'd be insulting to the king. So the envoy would say, hey, this king's coming. He's important. You got to make sure that you show him due respect for who he is, you know, and they kind of paved the way for the king. And that's a lot of what John the Baptist was doing. And when we look at our verse uh, 2, where it says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, it's a little confusing because actually when he first quotes, behold, I send my messenger before your face, it's Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. But it's important enough that all four Gospels record this statement in Malachi, where it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And Jesus even two times referred back to this passage in Malachi, Malachi to say, This is who John the Baptist is. He was the one sent my envoy to prepare the way for the coming of the king, to prepare our hearts, <clears throat> to get us ready. And what he was doing for the people, like I said, those words, the gospel, confession, and repentance. And that's what we need to do. You know, 
I, I spent nine years with Athletes in Action on college campuses. First four years at Michigan Tech and then five years at the University of Minnesota. And, and now my ministry with the Olympic athletes is more of a chaplaincy where I still share the gospel as much as I can. But back in the day, we shared the gospel like all the time. I loved it. And we keep stats of how many people. And, and, uh, and I got to, to know it so well. We had this little booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. And share it with the guys that be going through it with them. And, and a few times they'd say, you're a really good upside-down reader. <laughs> I, I had it memorized. But anyway, there's four points. The first one is the promise that God loves us and, and has a wonderful plan for our lives. But number two, there's a problem, and that sin separates us from God. And number three is, uh, is the provision, God's provision. Jesus Christ is God's answer uh, to pay for your sins. And number four, we need to personally accept that. A gift of salvation that Jesus gives. I shared that so many times. And if I would ask the question, which is the most important of the four? I mean, they're all important, obviously. But number two is the one that I sometimes would skip over maybe too fast because I didn't want to talk about sin. <laughs> but if you don't have sin, you don't understand you have sin, you don't really see the need for number three, a savior, or to fourthly personally accept that Savior. So it's important to know that. You know, I think the probably the biggest obstacle for people coming to the faith and believing in the gospel, they don't like the, the guilty verdict. They don't like the sin verdict. Who wants to be told you're a sinner? But if you don't understand that you're a sinner, you're not going to even look to Jesus. So fortunately, we have a helper in all this. Jesus said in um, John... 16, he says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, because if I go away, I will send to you the helper who will come to you. And he will, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Probably every one of us in this room would not have come to Christ if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit saying, you're a sinner. You've messed up. You've come short of God's plan. And you need a Savior. And the Holy Spirit does that. Aren't you glad? I have so many friends. I'd love to see you come into the kingdom, but I'm afraid to tell them, you know, you're a sinner. <laughs> but, uh, but the Holy Spirit is the one that does the most convincing and shows them that, hey, um, you need a Savior. Well, let's go to King David because I kind of bring things to a little, little bit of a close here. Um, I think maybe Sean shared a little bit about King David, but, but here's the king, the greatest king in Israel's history, even though he had... I don't know how many hundreds of wives, thousands of concubines. Um, there's the story how you know he sees Bathsheba, the neighbor, bathing on the rooftop, and he lusts after her. And he's the wife of his close friend, Uriah the Hittite. They were part of the 30 mighty men of David. So they spent nights in the field around the fire, you know, planning or reminiscing about battles. They were close friends. And so David commits adultery with one of his close friends. She gets pregnant. He tries to cover it up by bringing Uriah back. He refuses to go into his wife. So he sets up the battle so he will be killed, and he is. So not only is he a luster, an adulterer, now he's a murderer. And so this is what David said about his life. Theologians think that he probably spent at least a year avoiding God. In, in Psalm 32, 3, he says, when I, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. But finally, he relented. Psalm 139, which we like a lot better, he says, Search me, O God, 
search my heart, search my thoughts. And if you find anything in there that I've done wrong, please show me. What an honest prayer. I was talking between services with one of the guys, and, and we thought, wow, that's a scary prayer. <laughs> you know, you're saying, God, here I am. Search me thoroughly. What do you see? What do I need to see? Show me. And I want to make it right. But you know what? That's what John the Baptist was doing for the people as he walked them to the Advent to get them ready for Jesus, to confess your sins, repent of your sins. And that's what we need to do too. On a daily basis, on a minute-by-minute basis, confession and repentance. And if we want to have a close walk with Jesus, a close experience with Jesus this Christmas, understand Emmanuel, treasure Emmanuel, and just see it for the miracle that it really is, Confession and repentance are part of the plan as you walk towards that, that, that stage. You know, um, we don't want to get stuck in Psalm 32 where we groan all day long. But we want to be Psalm 139 where we say, here I am, God, show me. You know, um, I was going to have at the end of my service a real reflection time. But you know what? A minute, two minutes even five minutes, that would be a little uncomfortable, even five minutes, that's not nearly enough time for us to do this important act. Maybe maybe in the near future, go for a walk. Maybe wait till the thermometer gets at least above minus 20. <laughs> We've had quite the cold start to our winter. But just take some time and say, Psalm 139, God, show me, search me. Where, where have I failed? Where do I need to change? I mean, bring me rightly to you because I want to be with you. I want to have that joyous relationship with you. Let me uh, close this in prayer. Father, I want to thank you so much that you have provided the payment for our sins, though it came at a great cost to you. Lord Jesus, thank you for your obedience in humbling yourself and coming to our, our world and living your life and, and, and not getting the the glory that you deserve in so many ways. And yet, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were obedient all the way to that cross. And Lord, I pray that that our hearts and our, our, our souls, we just, and our minds would be open to what you want to do with us, especially this Christmas time as we want to get close to you and see you and really treasure you as we should. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would come into us and guide us, give us the desire for that in the first place if we don't have it, and make it greater, and and lead us to the, the things that we need to deal with, and, and give us the power to change those things. Lord, not that we be glorified, but that you would be glorified, that you would be honored and glorified as we become like you, Lord Jesus, and as we become more and more in love with you, Lord Jesus. So it's by the power that you do within us, and we thank you for that, and we just pray for that to happen. Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.